This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dijani. Jamal, we have a great show today. We actually, in studio, have with us uh, Washington reporters Elaine and Phil Pasquini. We're going to be getting to them a little bit later in the show hearing about, you know, basically what they're doing, spending all this time in Washington, D.C., and getting an assessment of the swamp level in D.C. So we'll be getting to uh, Phil and Elaine a little bit later. But before we do that, there's a lot to cover right now, especially with Syria. Syria is the hot topic right now for obvious reasons. Um, there's the threat, imminent threat, of another invasion. I wouldn't say an invasion, but, but a strike. An another attack by the United States, and a lot of tension between the United States, Russia, and because of that, there's a lot of tension because Iran and the Israelis are involved in this. Why have I, have we seen this chapter again? Well, this is the fourth chapter, and it seems to be like um, Groundhog Day. And, and I'm, I'm not saying this because, uh, you know, we support the Syrian regime. We don't. Uh, we think... Basically, most of the regimes in the Middle East are corrupt and they have all kinds of problems. But, you know, the timing that all of a sudden, every time you want to strike a, a country in the Middle East, you have to create a whole new issue around uh, weapons of mass destruction or, or chemical. And I want to read a little bit here because I saw this report that now... France wants to join in, join the action, and France's President Emmanuel Macron said that now that he has proof that the Syrian government attacked the town of Douma with chemical weapons last weekend. He said he would decide in due course whether to respond with airstrikes. He sounds a lot like uh, what Donald Trump said, Jamal. And by the way, there isn't universal acceptance yet, I should say, that in fact that the Syrian regime was responsible for this chemical weapon. Well, attack. I mean, it doesn't make any sense of whatsoever. I mean, you have the Syrian regime. They've been through this chapter before. Many times. And every time that they are making headway against Daesh or ISIS, and all these terrorists who are now surrounding Damascus and the so-called Free Syrian Army. I don't see anything free about the Syrian army except they're getting free money from the United, from States. The United <laughs> States and Saudi Arabia and other countries. Right. And all of a sudden, like he is going, Bashar Assad going is going to be stupid enough to attack civilians and children with chemical weapons to invite. A, a missile strike right. by the United States and now the interference of, uh, of and uh, by the way, the France other, and other countries. And the other reason it doesn't make sense, Jamal, is that uh, government forces already had almost complete, if not total, control of the area anyways. So, you know, we don't know is, is the point. And the second point is, it doesn't make political sense or military sense for Bashar al-Assad uh, and his government to do this strike. And yet, and still, we don't have the confirmation, the independent confirmation, that in fact uh, it was done by the Syrian regime. What's interesting to me is that Macron seems to be taking a page out of Donald Trump's uh, playbook, Jamal. Very interesting to me, because you know... Macron is having a lot of problems in France right now. There's a big strike going on. His popularity has taken a bit of a hit. The, the, the strike in France is causing some economic hardship. It does, that playbook sounds kind of interesting to me. Well, let's go back to Iraq. Just to remind our listeners, in case we suffer from short-term memory. Which we do. And take us back at the, to the United Nations Security Council when, uh, at the time, Secretary of State Colin Powell made his famous or infamous presentation showing carts of trains uh, transporting yellow cake and weapons of mass destruction and a whole major presentation to get the vote at the United, basically the United Nation, to invite everyone to, uh, you know, to join them in the attack on Iraq. So we've witnessed this chapter 
you know, we've witnessed this chapter trying, you know, like I was watching also our uh, ambassador at the United Nations, Nikki Haley, talking and giving this passionate speech. And she said, oh, I'm, this time I'm not going to show you any pictures. Thank right? God. She, at least she learned a lesson not to put the proof or the lies on on the air. So she said, I'm not going to show you any pictures. However, we are going to show you, you know, I'm going to tell you about all these dying children, etc. which absolutely, I mean, at the end of the day, the victim in this whole equation is the Syrian people. They are, they are the ones who have been victimized. They are, they've lost almost half a million people. Half the population is either displaced or living in refugee camps or left the country. And yet, you know, everyone is jumping on this bandwagon to basically come up with a pretext to attack Syria, right? Just the same, the same pretext they used in Iraq. Absolutely. And so she was talking about it, and I'm like, hmm. This sounds familiar. You know, this sounds so familiar, but I didn't see her the week before talking about the Palestinians who were killed in Gaza by exactly. Israeli snipers. I didn't see her talking about the Palestinian journalist in wearing, you know, the blue vest uh, with press written all over it. Not murdered, a single condemnation. Murdered by even, a sniper, by not the Not even a mention yeah. about this. And all of a sudden she's shedding these crocodile tears over Syrian children to give that pretext. Well, Jamal, I think that's a very good point. And if, if the United States is that interested in the humanitarian crisis in Syria, you know what they should do? They should let Syrian refugees come to the United States. And what has the Trump administration done? Is basically stopped or put a severe cap and limit on the number of Syrian children and displaced families uh, seeking political asylum from Syria. So that, that's, that's got to be number one. And the second question, we always have to ask ourselves this question, Jamal. In whose interest would it be to use chemical weapons in Syria? Whose interest is it? I don't believe, and I think your analysis is correct, I don't believe it's in the interest of Bashar al-Assad and his regime to use chemical weapons. They're doing just fine. It, this is really disturbing, and it's horrible. But using traditional warfare with the help of the Russians, they their interests are being well served. We may disagree about what those interests are, but there is absolutely no need for the Russian regime, uh, for the uh, Bashar al-Assad regime to use chemical weapons. So my question to you, who's using them, number one, and why? Well, well in, in fact, they don't have a solid evidence, and they didn't have a solid evidence last time. I mean, when you're talking about a solid evidence, aside from showing pictures of children suffering, whether these children are actually suffering from the chemical weapons, chlorine and, 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 and what have you, or if they are from this, this year or the years before, or right. from this village or that village. Because from my understanding, you need experts on the ground to test the soil. And experts are there right now. And to test the soil. Yeah, they're there right now. And number one, to determine if uh, chemical weapons were used. And then second, second is exactly... Who's using those? Uh, because there's also evidence that chemical weapons were used by ISIS and by Jabhat al-Nusra and other of those other those combatants there, uh, you know, in Syria. Who are antagonistic to the Assad regime, by the way. There are forces there who want to bring down Bashar al-Assad's regime who may have access to chemical weapons, those people, I mean, there's so many allegiances and alliances here. Some of those groups are more aligned with the United States than they are with Bashar al-Assad. I mean, you have, this is a proxy war. This is not a civil war. This is a it, proxy war. Absolutely. You have so many players on the ground. You have every, and, and I say it, I go back, that we are not here defending Bashar al-Assad regime. I, we believe that every, every party has blood. A lot of blood. On their hands. A right? lot of blood on their hands. And, and, in, and with the, uh, so many countries involved, so many parties involved, uh, you ask about who will benefit. 
Does Israel benefit? Yes. Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Russians. The United States. The United States. Now we, we're seeing France all of a sudden uh, is caring about its former colony. Yeah, it's not out of love. It's not Turkey, out of... Turkey, I forgot to mention Turkey. Yeah, which we'll get to in a second here. Now, the reason why we're bringing this up is because for all of uh, Trump's bellicose, well, I should say bellicosity in, in saying that he is going to send more missiles and there will be another strike of some nature in Syria, the 48-hour deadline that he said within a few days, within 48 hours, has come and gone, Jamal. And as of right now, and I know that we have our reporters here who are checking on any, any kind of breaking news, as far as I know, uh, that deadline has passed. There, there is no missile strike. And I think my interpretation of that is that the military uh, advisors for Trump have actually warned him and have given him counsel that we don't really know what's happening on the ground in Syria and we should be really careful because what's the phrase that we used with Iraq, Jamal? Unintended consequences. The unintended consequences of destroying the civil society of Iraq have got us to where we are today in the Arab world and Middle East. And the carnage, the number, the hundreds of thousands that are dead, the millions displaced, the lives that have been destroyed. You know, let's let's really be clear what uh, we're facing against. And what Nikki Haley said really did sound very similar. That playbook is being used again. Well, I want to share with you before we go to our reporters from Washington, D.C. These, these are Arab Talk uh, we reporters, keep, we keep yeah. teasing this because they have a lot to say about what's happening in Washington, D.C., and this is very relevant. But I want to share with our, both our viewers on uh, Facebook Live and our listeners. I'll, I'll read it to our listeners because they can't see it. And this is a tweet by President Trump in 2013. Of course, he wasn't president then. And this is what he, tweet, what he tweeted in response to... Uh, Barack Obama at the time, and I'll, I'll read it first, and, and we'll show it to you. So let's see if we can show it to our uh, viewers here. But this is a tweet I posted it for you guys who are, who are listening. You can go to my uh, Facebook page, Jamal Dajani, too. But uh, at the time, uh, Trump said to Barack Obama, and this is, uh, I'm, I'm reading, again, to our very foolish leader, do not attack Syria. If you do, Many very bad things will happen, and from that fight, the U.S. gets nothing. This is a tweet, ladies and gentlemen, by, I guess, then candidate. Um, I don't know if he announced Yeah, Did he announce it by then candidate? What's uh, the date on Donald that? Donald Trump. Uh, the tweet is from September 5th, 2013. I don't think he was fully announced yeah, at that time. Yeah, he was maybe had the intention. But this is the message that he actually sent. And now, all of a sudden, he wants to attack Syria. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. So let's, let's bring in our Arab Talk uh, reporters from uh, all over the world. We've spoken with Phil and Elaine Pasquini from Turkey from Palestine, from D.C., from Greece. I'm trying to think of, it's like, where in the world is Waldo, right? Yeah, from the Gulf area. So the, these guys are extraordinary reporters, obviously, and um, they, they split their duties between East Coast, West Coast, and, you know, internationally. So we're, we're lucky that you've landed here in the Bay again, and we can ask you, give us... You guys have spent quite a bit of time in the D.C. area now. Give us your sense, your finger on the pulse of what's happening with the swamp over there. What's, what, what's your impression? We'll start with you first, Phil. Uh, the swamp is growing, and uh, things are not looking good, as you can tell by just looking at the news every day or listening to it. Um, the quagmire, really, for the U.S. is mostly a lot to do with uh, what's being destroyed 
in the short term right. without any long-term planning and right. not understanding that uh, the credibility and the democracy that we promote is being eroded and that in order to regain that, if you just look at the Department of State, what's happened there with personnel and leadership and so on, right? Um, you know, these things are going to take decades to resolve and to bring back to where they were, which is where we should be. And instead of building off of the gains that we've made, there's this backstroke mentality that we should return to one person's idyllic view of what the world should be like. As far as I remember, it was an election. It wasn't an appointment to own a country. It was really a privilege to become a part of a leader of a country. And we seem to have digressed from that. And the best money in listening to, as we both know, Intel, State Department people, former diplomats, current diplomats, and so on, is that uh, we are in deeper trouble than we really acknowledge. Yeah, maybe you could say a little bit about that, Phil, because I know that uh, you and Elaine uh, not only um, were in D.C. for a long time doing some very interesting reporting, you, you did your homework. You went to the briefings. You, you actually did what is you know, some of the fruits of a, of a democracy, at least, right. you know, theoretically, is that there's, you know, there are briefings and transparency, and you as a citizen have that ability and that opportunity to go hear what's happening. So what are people saying who who kind of have some insight into this? Well, I'll tell you one iconic scene that I photographed, and yeah. that was students from the D.C. area when they had the walkout that day from all schools to go march between the demonstration at the White House where they turned their backs and sat for 17 minutes right? and then walked up to the Capitol. And Blumenfeld, this was the gun, gun reforms. Right, yeah. yeah. The day before, there was a very poignant demonstration in front of the South Lawn of the White House of 7,000 pairs of shoes of kids that have been killed, one pair for each child that has been killed since Sandy Hook. This is astronomically horrible. None of the legislators came out to see it. If they did, it was a cursory visit of very short duration, and they went back. The following day, there were 7,000 high school and middle-aged or middle school kids that came to this demonstration for gun control. And as soon as they got to the White or to the uh, Capitol, all the legislators, Democrats, I might say, not a single Republican, started coming down the stairs, you know, yelling and, and making noise. And they came up to the podium and they began talking. And uh, Blumenthal from Connecticut began talking, and a kid behind him held a sign. I got this wonderful photograph. And the sign said, last year I came to Washington to see how the government works. This year I'm back because I know it doesn't. Wow. That encapsulated everything that I think you need to know about what's going on in Washington today. Well, that's a very, um, that's a very amazing story, Phil. And, and guess what? what you guys have conclusion you've come to is it's not working. It's not working. But unfortunately, the consequences of it not working are um, disastrous. And oh, yeah. not, just, not just for the United States, but we're talking about a kind of globe, potential for global disaster, whether it's another kind of attack in Syria or the fact that um, you know, decisions are made about the, you know, uh, alignment of, you know, various forces in the Middle East, in the Gulf region, what's happening in Palestine, um, what's happening with Russia. I mean, these are having disastrous kind of consequences. Yeah, and, and if you, I mean, we're talking about Syria and Palestine and these other things. There's a country called Yemen that's been pushed to the back burner. Nobody pays any attention to it at this point, at least in American press. And we, Elaine and I both attended a number of uh, briefings on Yemen and what's going on in Yemen and how it's been sacrificed, if you will, as another proxy war, much like Syria, where you have different divisions. I mean, MBS was here last week uh, making his rounds for, what, three weeks, I think it was. And no one tour. called him out on it. Yeah, a few people did. We, mm -hmm. we covered one demonstration here. I think only uh, the mayor of Los Angeles brought up human rights issues with him. But for the most part, it was a, you know, a shopping experience for everybody involved. Good for us, good for them, and so on. But Yemen is a huge disaster. 
that no one pays any attention to at this point, and that's even in worse state than uh, Syria. If, if people it's, can believe it, but that's yeah, absolutely true. It's under continuous bombardment. Yeah. So, so, I mean, um, y- uh, we view things, or most, most people around the country and the globe, they see things from the outside, right? right? Mm-hmm. And when you spend time in Washington, D.C., and all what we see on the news, if I, if I were going to watch CNN, uh, you know, yesterday, it's like Stormy Daniels. Uh, if I were going to watch it the day before. Which channel were you watching? CNN. Oh. I'm just, no, I'm just, picking... I'm actually, I'm just actually picking one channel. The focus is on, you know, again, right. Stormy Daniels. Of course. And then you have these issues. We are on the brink of uh, an attack on Syria, and this comes with a price, right? You know, no one is going to talk about the civilians who are going to die. Uh, you've mentioned Yemen. No one talks about Yemen. Uh, and then you're there, and you're interacting with the politicians. And of course, uh, today, actually, later on, I'm going to play a clip from the hearings of the, uh, now the hearings for, I mean, yesterday we were watching the hearings uh, about uh, Facebook. Zucker. And and Zucker, yeah, yeah. And then today it, it's uh, Pompeo is the confirmation hearings, uh, you know, for the future, I guess, Secretary of State, Pompeo. Right. How do politicians, the ones you interact with, see this whole functionality, dysfunctionality, in, or dysfunctionality in Washington D.C.? Well, I mean, are they happy with what they're doing? Some of them are guarded in their comments because they have to live and work there, and they don't really really want to talk to journalists and and show their hand, or uh, what was the phrase Trump uses? Uh, he's not going to telegraph what they want to do. Uh, he's not going to telegraph, but he's <laughs> he's been telegraphing on he Twitter that he's going to strike. I mean, right. he, he's he, going to strike Syria. He has right. tweets every. Ten seconds. Yeah. I mean, he says I mean he you would think telegraph. he was the inventor of the telegraph. Um, I think most politicians are frustrated and fed up with short-term sound bites for problems that are astronomical. I mean, if you if you attend some of the things that we've been to um, briefings on Yemen, for example, and you and you hear people from State Department and Intel and former diplomats from there. And you understand the nuance of language and you look at what's going on and what's being said and the complexity of the issue because you have the Houthis and you've got the UAE and you've got the Saudis and you've got the Iranians and, and you've got the Egyptians. And what all that means and who's flexing muscle in their neighborhood, some, in some cases for the first time, you can't solve that problem With by a tweet. A tweet. No. And you can't do that in Syria, and you can't go bomb Syria and solve the problem. And I think the difference, the disconnect between our president and the military is what you talked about earlier, and that was they're the ones on the ground that are being shot at as opposed to a guy who sits on his throne and dictates orders and thinks he can solve issues by making decrees. I guess that's what you would call them. Um, there's a big difference in those two things. Yeah. There's practical knowledge and there's this ethereal idealistic thing from having lived in a tall tower for a long time that somehow endows you with the consciousness and intellectual ability to dictate to the world. I'm not even sure. I think you're giving him much more credit, uh, Phil. I think (laughs) there's actually someone in the White House right now who has no interest in governance. No, not at all. I mean, democracy, for all of its warts and imperfections at some fundamental level is based on governance right. and three co-equal systems of government. We have someone in the White House who, who's not interested in governance. Well, he doesn't know anything about that. He, and, he doesn't. You know, yeah. To get back to your question, I think most of the people that we've heard speak who are in the political arena, who are the decision makers, one person we heard talk was one of the architects of the Iraq War. I wouldn't say there's a consensus, but the general direction of what they have to say is simply that they're very frustrated that, you know, if you talk to people in these departments, the one thing that you hear, the common denominator among all of them is how many career, long time, super qualified. We're not talking about a non-brain trust. We're talking about brain trust 
who are bailing out because they can't deal with it. They right. don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be associated with it. Talking about brand trusts and all the changes, and, and again, you, you've been witnessing. I mean, I can't keep track of all the changes in the Trump administration, right? And, and, and this morning, I was watching the hearings. Uh, no, I was watching the hearings uh, with, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Pompeo, right? He's right. going to be, seems to be that he is going to be confirmed as our future Secretary of State, but one bit, uh, one part of those uh, hearings I liked was uh, the segment with Senator Cory Booker mm -hmm. from New Jersey, asking him the real questions because uh, all the other questions was they were fluff questions, kind of like you know. But then, I mean, here we're having someone who is going to be in charge of. Um, our foreign policy, basically. Mm. Uh, Trump is talking about, uh, you know, attacking Syria, but in, in fact, he, he should be the one making, along with the president and secretary of defense, those decisions. And, 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 and we'll, we'll talk a little bit also about Bolton. Who, that's another, <laughs> that's another story. But, but this guy, this guy really, he's a, a, an Islamophobe. He hates Muslims. Oh, he's one of the biggest. Islamic he's the films. biggest, yeah. and, and I want you to listen a little bit about uh, listen a little bit to, to these hearing uh, these questions. So let's listen to. I, I do have a problem though when you start creating dicing up American people and saying certain Americans. I don't care if it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Muslims that serve on my staff that they're in positions of leadership that suddenly have a special obligation. Um, uh, I do believe though all of us when this comes to violent actions or even violent words have an obligation. And, and, and so I'm wondering, sir, do you, do you know um, Frank Gaffney? Yes, I do. And you've been on his show dozens of times. I was, I was on his show some, yes, Senator. I have here over 20 times. And he has talked about Muslims should be who, who, who would abide by the adherence of their faith should be considered, should be tried for acts of sedition and should be prosecuted. Did you remain silent when you were on his show? Did you ever question? Because I have a lot of his statements here. Mm -hmm. Did you remain silent on the, on the, and he's, from my notes, at least you're a friend of his. Were you silent in your position of authority uh, against these words that are violative of the American Constitution? Were you silent with him? Senator, my record on this is unambiguous. I, 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 Sir, then, I, then I if, that's, if that's your response, you did not say anything to call out his remarks. What about Bridget Gabriel? Do you know her? I do. Uh, someone who has been, who runs an organization that has been considered a hate group by the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center. H have you ever, were you silent? Did you ever call her out on her remarks that are hateful or bigoted? Senator, I've spoken to a number of groups and my, I, I believe my record with respect to uh, tolerance and the but equal you, treatment you were, of people. You, as, I, you, I think you never. Uh, yes or no? You, you, did you ever call her out? Senator, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't tell you. I don't recall each statement I've made over 54 years. Okay. Well, I believe the special obligation that you talk about for Americans to condemn things that are attacking our Constitution, our ideals, would obligate you, in your own definition, to speak out. Um, when it comes, Senator, to Senator if I might, I, I have called out. Um, we had a terrible fellow in Kansas named Fred Phelps. Sir, I have a and, minute and left. I called, and I called my, him out. I have a minute left because I, I do want to give you a chance to speak about your comments on gay and lesbians. You, you said in a speech that uh, mourning an America that endorses perversion and calls it an alternative lifestyle, those are your words, is being gay a perversion? Senator, I, 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 when I was a politician, I had a very clear view on uh, whether it was appropriate for two same-sex persons to marry. I stand by that. So, you, so it's, you do not believe it's appropriate for two gay people to marry? Senator, I continue to hold that view. It's the same view. And so people in the State Department, I met some in Africa that are married under your leadership. You do not believe that that should be allowed? Senator, I, I, we have, I, I believe it's the case we have married uh, gay couples at the CIA, you should know. I treated them with the exact same set of rights. You believe that? You believe that? Well, anyway, uh, you that's listen. our next. That's our next Secretary of State. Why? Yeah, you listened. Uh, he, in in fact, is a well-known Islamophobe, a well-known homophobe. These are the hearings. I mean, and those are his good qualities. And, <laughs> unfortunately, and he it, is going to be, you know, alongside with Donald Trump. John Bolton, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, and 
he's going to be sitting Jared next. Kushner. Well, uh, these are the key decision makers. It's the perfect swamp. Okay. It's the perfect how swamp. About, how about uh, Mike Pence, who has very similar and probably more extreme views? As I mean, the same as uh, my questions again to you: What do people in Washington think about all these appointments? Well, Washington is not unlike the Bay Area; it's a very liberal city, and most people, citizens, are very disgusted by what they see because they live with it every day. Yeah, and it affects them directly. They don't; they can't even vote for the things that they want. It has to go through Congress. So, uh, aside from that, I think the people that I know that are involved in government are incredulous about this. They, they only feel safe if they're actually uh, a government employee as opposed to a political appointee because they know what the politics is going to lead to. You can see that yourself with right. all the changes. You know, every department has a head du jour for the most part. You know, we're running rudderless. The ship of state has no captain, if you will. Nobody really is running the State Department at the moment. From my understanding, what goes on there, a lot of what goes on is being handled by staff. And that's pretty much, I think, you know, you heard the same thing yeah, throughout. Mick yeah, Mick Mulvaney running two departments. How can you run two departments? Yeah, and and get anywhere. I did read, however, or the, the good side of it is he only gets a salary from one department. He doesn't and get not two. two departments. No, he doesn't get well, two. So he's working twice as hard for half as much money. Let's bring actually Elaine to the conversation here. And Elaine, Elaine, she writes uh, for the Washington Report, and. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your uh, recent coverage. What what have you been working on there? Um, Roots of Terrorism. <laughs> Tell which, us more, Elaine. Which was um, a lady, Sandra Sham, who was an anthropologist, is an anthropologist, lived in Jerusalem for a long time, and going back to a history of violent extremist groups. And, um, well, one thing she pointed out was Israel, how important history is. Israelis, you know, they link themselves to the... Iron Age and Palestinians to the Canaanite period, and uh, as she said, people have long memories, and um, and then uh, was, oh Paul Salem, who was at the Middle East Institute, who does um, one thing. I was going to say is, I mean, the people we see, a lot of them are they're just into other things, I and mean, they go about their business despite what's going on in the White House, um, because that's kind of useless with the White House, what mm. he's doing. Mm. So they go on. I mean, Middle East Institute has their a track to dialogue uh, for Iraq and Syria. And so people are engaged in trying to do something. It's like going around the government, I guess you'd say, or just continuing their things despite. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to say about, you are talking about Syria and the 24, 48-hour deadline. I don't think anybody pays attention to that. I mean, people here, everything Trump has said I mean, he, he talks so much that people take him less seriously. I don't even think Putin and Assad are, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. I mean, yeah, they know something. Well, And also the thing, though, about the chemical, why do chemical weapon? That's only to draw us in. I mean, you want to just kill people. There's ways to kill people, <laughs> more well, people, to, easier. What, what, but the what, only reason to do the chemical thing is it's so horrible. You want to attract tension and you're trying yeah, to draw I mean, what, what drives me it. crazy we have approximately half a million, and I repeat this number, half a million Syrians who have been killed. Mm -hmm. We have half the Syrian population either displaced internally or fled the country. And then That's about 10 as, million. Soon as, they see, as soon as they show you or start talking about some chemical attack which might have affected a few hundred people, all of a sudden... We want to declare war on Syria. That's the whole and point. Send, send the yeah. cruise missiles. Right. That is so the whole point. So right. what have they been doing when right. half a million people were yeah. getting slaughtered? And, and, what and, have they been doing when ISIS and uh, or Daesh crossed from Iraq through their porous border into Syrian villages and towns and and enforced the their own it, uh, interpretation of the Sharia law? and destroyed, you know, mosques and churches and killed people and enslaved women. They were silent about it. But the whole thing, I think, and Phil knows it, it's just the chaos. All anybody wants is chaos because chaos brings money, and it's all about the money, whether it's Russia or Syria or any place. Well, let's talk That's about that. Let, yeah, yeah, let's let's talk about that because 
if you look at the Pentagon budget this year, it's $700 billion for the Pentagon. $700 billion. That's just what we know about. We toured the the Pentagon, too, on our trip. But listen, that's that's the Pentagon budget for one year. That's more than 99% of all countries' GDP almost combined. I mean, that's three-quarters of a trillion dollars. So 1%. Yeah, that's that the one percent. Yeah, and that kind of tells you what this is about. See, but it's a, it's always a knee jerk reaction. And Jamal's point was well taken. We don't even know who did this yet. There's, we there's, don't know. Evidently, the smart money right now is we're not sure what they use, and we don't know who's responsible. But this information is part of the something was scenario. used. You've seen the pictures. I mean, they're not just making that up. No, no. Right. But but you know, all of us are aghast at when we see those images. Don't say aghast. Yeah, really. Right, right. Everybody's devastated by those images. But we should be, you know, this is our point. We should be devastated by the every single one of the 500,000 Syrians but that has we died. we did that conveniently in Africa, if you remember, under right. Clinton, where there was massive violations of human rights. And we did nothing about it because, A, they didn't have any oil. They were Africans. Nobody was really interested in getting involved in it until things got so bad. Was it Hutus and and the Tutsis? Yes. And suddenly, at the very end of it, we suddenly started getting involved. You know, and, and it caused the disaster. Right. And, and exactly another one. You know, and so there's more of well, well, Trump like I mean, as emotional and as erratic as he is, that's what he thrives on. And that's what he's trying to sell in any of these scenarios is some kind of emotional knee-jerk reaction, reaction right. with a quick fix and then move on to something else. Well, that's part of, but that's part of the news cycle that we're caught up right. in. Oh, you yeah. know, it's yeah. not even a 24-hour news cycle no, it's anymore. More like an hour. Right. It's an hour news Report cycle. Repeated 23 hours right. a day. It's, it's breaking an, news. Breaking the old, news. The new, right. right, which is my pet peeve hearing right. that uh, Donald Trump had a tweet as b- breaking news. It's... It's changed the whole dynamic about the way we are with news. Last week, the news du jour was Scott Pruitt, right. which is horrific what the EPA director is doing with his million-dollar security detail, his trips to Paris, his trips to Morocco. Soundproof booze. His trip to Sound- diplomat when we were there. Yeah, we, we the diplomat. We went to a restaurant. His favorite. We the diplomat, yeah. <laughs> we were there eating. And Our favorite restaurant. I wondered what was going on with all the automobiles and the big... You know, Checking out the scene. Going to dinner. I mean, I so, went to dinner and. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a misuse of the public trust, and that news cycle, is gone already, and now we're on to something else. But Americans only remember things for about fifteen minutes. If that. And remember that newspapers and radio and television are written at about a seventh to eighth grade level. I don't even think it's that high anymore. It depends on how you measure it, but roughly in that area, so that complicated situations and predicaments are explained in the most elementary way to engender a particular bit of feedback. I mean, for example, we talked about Zuckerberg. He's up there. How many of the people that questioned him do you think really knew what they were talking about they in didn't. terms of technology? It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Only they a were few. asking, uh, you know, these are senators. Right. They were asking very basic questions. They needed technology experts. Right. And we have that, but they, they didn't provide them no. with the questions. He got, they got him off the hook. And what really? kind of answers did he give? I'll have my staff get back to you. No, but listen, you That's guys, it, an it's even worse because in 2000. Uh, 11 and 2012, he was sanctioned by the FTC for a very similar thing. He did the same mea, mea culpa eight right, years right. ago or six years ago. And yeah, as you said, then, so. yeah, and as you guys said, the people's memory is very short. Right. And here he is again, you know, saying, oh, mea culpa, it's my biggest mistake. Oh, we don't mind being regulated. Yeah, which, is, okay. which is completely bogus. We're now right. learning, Jamal, by the way, that Facebook can spy on you and get your information. Even if you don't belong. Even if you're yeah. not a Facebook user. Yeah. It's a spy agency. Let's well, face it. It's, it's surveillance. No longer, it's, it's a surveillance. It's a spy agency. I mean, they agency. used to put GPS. They have, they have Mossad and former Mossad employees working for them. Yeah. I mean, let's call it spade a spade. It's not a social media. No. Just, uh, That's what Snowden's all mad about because 
Facebook's a spy agency, and when he blew the whistle on NSA, he got stuck in Russia. So. Right, and what what happens with the major spy agency, which is Facebook, you know, arguably you could say Mark Zuckerberg is the king of the largest transnational state in the right. world. Yeah. I mean, two billion so people. Not, there's no, nobody else. There's no country. Population. There's no nation state. Right. He is the king because right. he's the the majority stakeholder in Facebook. He is literally the king of the largest transnational state and collection of people in the world. It's really outrageous. We were warned about when you go back to the Industrial Revolution that corporate power would become too strong. Yeah. And I, I just did an article on— Didn't Eisenhower say something about Eisenhower that, too? Yeah. Yeah. Malcolm X said something yeah. about that. Yeah. But Eisenhower is oftentimes misphrased. What he really said was, imagine what you could do with society if you took the money that went to military-industrial complex and you put it into social services to build a better country. Right. Not to build a better military. Obviously, we need that. But how do you build a better society, a more moral society? A more understanding society, more compassionate society. And we've gotten further and further away we're, from we that. Couldn't get further you, away you're that. listening to the voice of Phil and Elaine Pasquini. Both of them are reporters from the Washington Report. But we and also Arab Talk correspondents. We also claim them as the Arab Talk correspondents. Wherever they are in the world. Wherever they are in the world. So I just want to, I just want to make a few minutes. I want to uh, shift gears a little bit here and talk about uh, what I, what what is now known as the PEPS, meaning progressive except on Palestine. <laughs> and and you're in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of PEPS in Washington, D.C. We, we've, we've been seeing all the killing in Gaza. We've, seen, we've been seeing this ugly footage of the interrogation of Ahd Tamimi. Uh, there was also another footage recently posted uh, about uh, Israeli snipers, uh, mm. you know, uh, uh, celebrating yeah. the shooting of an unarmed Palestinian right. and calling him an SOB. And yet we have this deafening silence out of Washington, D.C. I think only three, three Washington uh, Post senators slash congressmen. Did, did report some of it. Yeah, but as far we have 535 members of Congress. I think Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes said a few yeah, things. Okay, but I want to also talk about the 535 members of Congress that we have. Three of them said something. Three of them said something. You know, that's an interesting point that you bring and up. And they all, they're now screaming, screaming, Syria, Syria, let's bomb Syria. Right. What's but, going on? But one conference that we went to, which was good, they talked about Palestine as an issue. Which one? Said, which conference was that? I, I can't remember which one it was. No, no. Speaking about Palestine. No, anybody. but let, let me say this first and it may strike a chord. One person said, Palestine is in fear of being marginalized because of everything else that's going on in the Arab world right now. And that couldn't be truer to the fact that all these other areas, the, the theory behind it is that Palestine has been an issue for so long that people are worn down with Palestine as an issue, Israel-Palestine. Exactly. That was a, that it's, oh, it's problem du jour that steps to the top. You know, if you eat in the same diner every day and they always have steak and potatoes and you come in one day and they have pancakes, most people will order pancakes. And that, that's the concept behind it, that it's, a, it's an unresolved issue that's gone on for so long that people have fatigue about the issue that they're transiting their humanitarian ideology and concern about what else is going on. And I think that's what Israel obviously has been a part of for a long time. And hoping for. Keeping it going long enough that nobody pays attention to this it. This reminds anymore. me, though, of when we were in Cairo 25 years ago, <laughs> bringing up the subject of Palestinians with a young Egyptian man. And he says, oh, there's only a couple of million. Who cares? Yeah, there's I mean, only that, two million he, of them. There's 60 was, million of us, you know. Right. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you're going to deal with problems because there are humanitarian issues involved and we go back to the precept of the Bill of Rights where all men are created equal, then we should be equally dealing with all the problems. But when you get to Washington and you start throwing politics into the mix, it doesn't matter what the humanitarian crisis is. It's who's advocating for it the most. I met a reporter there from Australia at the conference for, that the magazine had. And he said, I'm totally amazed at how your government operates with lobbyists. 
because this, this APAC is was having their conference the right. day after. That's right. right. You were there during yeah. Right. Yeah, we the covered, APAC conference. We covered the demonstrations. APAC, right. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was he was com completely in shock. And I said, I told him, we have the best government money can buy. That's what we have. And he went, I never heard it put so succinctly before. I said, it's an old adage because it's so true. It rings so, so true. true. Now, we were in Kansas and we went to the, to the house to see some bills being passed. We got down on the floor. And before we walked in, before you could get into the chambers, being kept out of the chambers, there must have been 150 lobbyists all advocating whatever they could advocate in the one-minute stretch of time it took to, to walk down the hall through security to get into the floor. And one of the things they talked about the day after that I was there was uh, the anti-BDS sanctions that Canvas right. had, had imposed. And this and shows, you wrote something about yeah, it. Yeah, I just did a piece on it. And the interesting thing about it was a year ago, they passed a law in Kansas that if you did business with the state, you had to sign an affidavit, basically, saying you would not participate in BDS or you'd be denied uh, the business. A teacher applied for a program. She was selected to be in a program. She was going to go into the program. They said she happened to be a Mennonite. They don't support what goes on between Israel and Palestine. They said, you have to sign an anti-BDS Yeah, she agreement. refused to sign she it. She refused to sign it. Right. Her name was Esther Kuntz. Yeah. Uh, you, you, um, ACLU. ACLU sued them for infraction of her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Well, what did they do in Kansas? They rewrote the law. They changed the terminology of definition of a contractor to business or a company that does business in an aggregate of $100,000 or more, and anybody that does business in a lesser amount is relieved from having to sign an agreement. Now, the courts put an injunction in January of this year, the federal court, and said, this is a violation of First Amendment rights. You can't do this. Well, my hook for the article was, but the Supreme Court said the corporations had the same rights as people. <laughs> That's right. So how can you now say it, the Bill of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, don't delineate how much you have to be worth in order to have your rights. It just presumes that since you're a living entity, you have those rights because you live in the country. And so this is what the piece that I wrote about. So th this goes back to your question about Washington. How are they dealing with this stuff? They try to work around it by coming up with some buffoonish solution. solution. This is nothing. Nothing's going to happen with this in my mind. It's going to be litigated some more. It's going to cost the taxpayers of that state more money to go back to court to find out exactly what they knew to begin with, and that was it's a violation. Well, uh, uh, another analysis of this, you guys, is just that this has been, if, especially if you look at the tax cuts, right. which is the largest single transfer of wealth from the middle class and poor people to the super elite. That's, well, it's on, it's on the scale of baby boomers inheriting from their parents as far as— uh, I think it's even— Bigger. I think it's even yeah, bigger. Yeah. Because we know one one inescapable fact that the that the income differential, the wealth gap between those who have and those who don't have, is getting greater oh, every growing, year. Yeah. Smaller and smaller percentage of people have greater amounts of wealth than has ever occurred. Right. Now we have these tax cuts, which are going to transfer even more wealth away from the middle class, people who are very, very poor, and who can barely make it. So it, it seems like this was a wealth grab. Well, it's get, reverse social engineering. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And Donald Trump signed yesterday a f in order to get, you know, government support, you know, food stamps, all of that. Right. People have to work. Right. He, he's putting single parents, single mothers, forcing them to uh, go back to work. So the reverse engineering, whatever you want to call it. I see it as an opportunity for more wealth redistribution. It's just money upwards. grab. It's it is a money grab. grab. And, you know, you and I may get some benefit from it, but only for three or four years, and then we're going to pay more. The corporate side of it, it goes on forever. Forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, right. So there's a big, a big disparity in how it's even, you know, th and this goes back to what we talked about earlier of you get – Say you get more money because of the tax deal for a couple of years. That's really good. And then pretty soon you forget about it because your memory is only 15 minutes that we talked about. <laughs> and so when it comes back around, there may be a Democrat sitting there. And who are they going to blame for this but a Democrat? Right. It goes back to Obama. We talk about these issues. And what does this guy come up with? It's either Obama or Hillary's emails. 
these are not even subjects anymore. This is a broken record. No, but routine, we're gonna, you know? we're we're going to be running tremendous deficits again. Oh yeah. And this is well already what thirteen trillion trillion. Yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting is that um, we don't have that much time to talk about it, but you know, Paul Ryan did announce his uh, right. his. <laughs> <laughs> His idea of not being able to run again. This guy ran for 20-plus years. See what the swamp Cut, puts in. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think Paul Ryan ends up being the swamp monster. He ends up being the, the – Yeah, he, he ends up being among the most um, denigrated, the most swampy of the swamp. I covered a DACA demonstration Thank at the Capitol. And speaking of journalists being spoken to by people, and somebody came up to me who was instrumental in this demonstration and said, I'm not going to lose any faith in them not doing anything. This was when it was pivotal with the budget. This was in January. Right, right. And uh, the guy said, Paul Ryan, I know him. I've known him for a long time. He's a good guy. He said, within six days, we're going to have a DACA law. I said, you believe him? He went, absolutely. I thought, you should have gotten his email. We have his I email. have. You should. <laughs> look him up. We're still waiting for DACA. Hey, Phil and Elaine, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. you guys, it's always a delight to have you guys it's in the studio. Delight. How long are you going to be in the Bay Area? Oh, a couple more weeks. And, and then give us a website where people can find out both you well, and Elaine's Well, the Washington readings. Report on Middle East Affairs, well, which is WRMEA.com. WRMEA. Yeah, that's a good one. And another and one that I work your, on. Your on, photography. On Facebook. <laughs> You're on Evil Facebook, I'm too? I'm on Evil Facebook. Okay. It's News Inc. That's N-U-Z-E oh, yeah. dot I-N-K slash, I guess, Facebook. And I post a lot of stuff there, including one thing I'm very proud of, and that's Signs of the Times, because there are signs all over Washington and many other places that really tell you what's going on because there are things that people create to get their ideas out. So. put things on mailbox or anything, if it doesn't stay on for what? Can be, hours, no, it could be there days. for 30 days, and then you, you have to remove it, but it's often removed so by the municipality. So. Okay, well, listen, thanks a lot, you guys. Right, Keep welcome. up the great reporting, and uh, we'll have you back in studio soon. Thank okay. you all for joining us today on Arab Talk. Follow us at Jamal Dejani 2. Follow us at our website, ArabTalkRadio.com. Follow us at Twitter at Arab Talk, or send us an email at ArabTalk at kpoo.com. We'll see you next week.